Okay, well, last week, uh, our passage was Genesis chapter 17. And Genesis 17, uh, for those of you who are familiar with it or were with us, uh, it's, it's basically all big, one big conversation between God and Abraham. Except for the very end of the passage. The very end of chapter 17, it gets pretty interesting. It's a large circumcision ceremony with Abraham, his son Ishmael, and like all the males of his household. They all come together on the same day and they're all circumcised. It's a really bizarre situation if you think about it. Okay? And, and one of the things that, that then we're kind of anticipating as we move from Genesis 17 to Genesis 18 is like, okay, where are we going next? And, and are, are things going to like get even more interesting? And the short answer is actually yes. Like when you look at Genesis 18, Genesis 18 is one of those passages that is just filled with, with things that you're like, that is remarkable. That, that is strange. That is interesting. And it's one of those passages that as a preacher, here's what I know. You have more questions probably about this text than I have answers to give you. Okay, it's one of those passages where you get into it, you see these three men appear, and you figure out the Lord is involved, and like there's all these complexities, little details that just prompt questions in our mind about what exactly is going on. And whenever we run into passages like this, which is not every week, by the way, but whenever we do, I just want to invite you into like the mind of your pastor for a little bit here, okay? When we run into a text like this, that's full of very interesting details, but not necessarily tons of answers to the questions that it prompts in our mind. Uh, first of all, I want you to know, like, I have those questions too, okay? When I bump into a passage like this, I have all kinds of questions. I'm curious like a cat, just like you are, okay? But what I also know is this, uh, the questions that I have are rarely the questions that my soul actually needs answered. And also, the questions that I tend to have in passages like these, they're rarely the questions that are addressed and answered by the Word of God itself. And so when we come together and we're here and we are trying to dive into God's Word together, my aim, my goal, is that I would bring to bear the truths that are made plain in God's Word, and bring to bear the truths that our soul most deeply needs. Okay? And so we're going to walk through the text together. And, and our aim is not to answer every single possible question that exists as we get into the Word. But instead, to bring to bear those truths that are most important for our souls to deeply understand. And those truths that are most made bare and plain in the Word of God itself. It doesn't mean that there's no complexity. There certainly is. But we want to deal with what is in front of us, not conjecture and hypotheticals. So, I, I say all of that just by way of encouragement. To encourage us that we would not be lost, kind of meandering uh, around all of the different questions we may have. But instead, I want to invite you to walk with me through the text and to see in it the two primary things that I think are here in the Word. Mainly, that is, God's appearing and His revelation. The appearing of God... And then, beyond just appearing, we see the revelation of God. God revealing not only himself, but much more as well. And we're going to see that as we get into it. And through this, 
we're going to, this passage, what's so remarkable, remarkable about this passage is it leads us into an arena that is so foundational to the Christian life. There are truths in this text that I believe get at, they, they get at the very heart of the, the life of faith. Okay, this text is designed to pour foundation into our soul that if it's missing, I would just tell you it is only a matter of time before your faith will crumble. If the foundation that's laid in this text is missing, I believe it is only a matter of time before you're going to run into a faith crisis. Because, like I said, this text, it leads us right into the heart of of the life of faith, right into the heart of the Christian life. And that's what we want to get into together today, and we'll do it as we wrestle in the Word. Now, where we're going to begin is by diving in and looking at the appearing of God. The appearing of God. That's what comes to us first in the text. And we see it in the first eight verses of Genesis 18. And and I want us to actually see this together in the Word. We're going to make some observations from it. So I want you to notice everything we can, and we're just going to work back through the first eight verses of the text. So if you have the word, get it out, get it in front of you. And this is what it says, starting in verse one, it says, then the Lord appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, which is where Abraham settled when he split with Lot. Okay. So he's just at home while he was sitting in the entrance of his tent during the heat of the day. Now just pause there for one second. Verse 1 is like an editorial note, okay? So it's, it's, it's brought into the passage so that we, the readers, understand a little bit of what's happening. The Lord did not announce his appearing when he showed up, okay? This is an editor's note, just framing the situation. Here's what's going on. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Verse 2 is where it really begins, okay? This is where the narrative picks up. He, meaning Abraham, looked up. And he saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them, and he bowed to the ground. Then he said, my Lord, notice lowercase l, okay, that's an intentional translation there, lowercase l. If I found favor in your sight, please do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought that you may wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I will bring a bit of bread so that you may strengthen yourselves. This is why you have passed your servant's way. Later you can continue on. Yes, they replied. Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried in the tent and he said to Sarah, Quick, knead three measures of fine flour and make bread. Meanwhile, Abraham ran to the herd and he got a tender choice calf. He gave it to a young man who hurried to prepare it. Then Abraham took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set them before the men, and he served them as they ate under the tree. So notice in the appearing of God, these three men, they show up, they appear to Abraham. And the scene that we should picture here is, it's like uh, the pizza ranch buffet, okay? They're like hitched up to the buffet, and Abraham is just bringing them out curds and milk and bread and a choice tender calf. And, and it really is just pure glory here. Okay, it is a feast of epic proportions. And as we observe the appearing of God in this situation, I want us to make four observations. Okay, four observations. We're going to do the same when we get to the revelation of God. We'll have four observations there. But we're just going to start by making four observations in the appearing of the Lord. The first is this. 
God is appeared in these first eight verses, but he's not yet revealed. God has appeared, but he has not yet revealed himself to be the Lord. Abraham, at this point in time, I think it's clear that he has some understanding, like there is something unique going on. Maybe there's something unique about these three men, but he doesn't yet know that this is his God, his maker, right in front of him. You know, first of all, he says, uh, my Lord, lowercase l, this is a sign of respect. He says, I, you know, if I found favor, don't go past your servant. But then, then he says in verse 5, you know, this is why you've passed by your servant's way, and later you can continue on. Um, people don't tend to speak to God that way. Like, here's why you've come, and then here's when you can leave, when I say so. Um, God has not yet revealed himself to Abraham, but he has appeared to him. And here's why this is important, okay? We need to understand that God is not like LeBron James for many reasons. But, but one of those reasons is this. If LeBron James was standing here next to me, uh, you would know that LeBron James was standing next to me. Like, w- when LeBron appears, LeBron is revealed, okay? That, like, he just is who he is, and when you see him, that's all it takes, But God is not like that. God actually has to reveal himself for us to know and understand and perceive the Lord. It is a remarkable thing about the nature of human beings and the nature of God. Another way to think about it is this. You don't just naturally perceive and understand God. Or another way to say it is this. You can't just go on like a hunt for God and find him. He has to reveal himself to us. That is the way that life works. It's a huge deal. Do you know why the debate about the existence of God, that's going to continue like on and on and on and on and on until he returns and reveals himself and judges the world? And the reason is because human beings, they can't just decide to go on a quest for truth and, and then like... Find, understand, and experience God. You can't just do it. God must reveal himself to us. Even when he appears, even when he comes. See, when Jesus came, do you know that people missed him? Like Jesus, God in the flesh. He showed up. He was here. He was among us. And people missed him. They didn't understand this was God. Because he must be revealed. Now, the, the wonderful thing is this. Do you know that Jesus has promised to reveal himself? He's promised it. John 14, Jesus, he promised, whoever has my commands and keeps them, I will reveal myself to him. It's an incredible, remarkable promise. You want proof for the existence of God? take him at his word you take him at his word and he has said i will reveal myself to you he is not in hiding and yet he must reveal himself to us if we are to see him as he is if we are to understand him okay so abraham god he has not yet revealed himself abraham doesn't fully grasp who he's dealing with 
quite yet. And yet he throws this like incredible feast for these three men. And, and, and I think the question we might be asking ourselves is like, why? Why is it that Abraham has all this trouble in order to serve and bless and, and give a feast to these three men? The answer is this. Observation number two. Abraham is incredibly hospitable. He's just incredibly hospitable. And honestly, just like everybody else in this part of the world. And, and it's a beautiful thing. It's something I think we could learn a lot. Okay? Abraham, these three men, notice what happens in this scenario. These three men, it's like they just appear out of nowhere. Verse 2, he looked up, he saw three men standing near him. And you think, like, how many visitors did Abraham have at the Oaks of Mamre, you know, near the entrance to his... Probably not that many. And how many of those visitors, like, catch him by surprise and just appear out of nowhere? Again, probably not many. These three men, they just show up. When he saw them... He ran. He's 99 years old. And he has guests at the door and he runs to meet them. You know, my kids do that. <laughs> They're like six. <laughs> I can't tell you the last time I ran to meet somebody at the door. And then it says this. He ran from the entrance of the tent to meet them and he bowed to the ground. I'm thinking like 99 years old. If I do that, like I'm not getting back up. <laughs> just, like, just laying on the ground. Okay, the fridge is yours. <laughs> Take what you want. He says, my Lord, lowercase l, my Lord, if I found favor with you, please don't go past your servant. Let some water be brought. May you wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. I'll bring a bit of bread, which is an understatement of the year. And he goes and he gets this feast for them and he serves them. And I want you, first of all, something, you just tuck this away in your back pocket for a little bit. No, notice what, what Abraham is doing here. Okay, he serves them a meal. He gets some water to wash their feet. Now think about what Jesus did. I, our, our God, the one who made us, he comes in the flesh and he serves us the meal and he washes our feet. But here it's Abraham. Do you remember what the author of Hebrews said in Hebrews 13? There's a little nod to Abraham. He said in verse 2, we studied this just a couple months ago, don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. That's what this is. This is Abraham serving angels and serving the Lord himself simply by being hospitable, welcoming in. Now, if that doesn't get you excited to open up your home and be hospitable... I don't know what will. But it's a great example for us. And it's something that's sweet to see. Observation number three. God appears alongside two angels. So God here, he's appeared to Abraham. But he's done it alongside two angels. Okay, three men show up. One is the Lord. The other two are angels. And, and I think we're, we might be initially tempted here <clears throat> to presume. So whenever I see threes in the Bible, for whatever reason, like I automatically equate it to like, okay, this is for sure Father, Son, and Spirit, right? <laughs> That's the right answer. And that would be a totally fine conclusion to draw here. Uh, but it's just the wrong conclusion, okay? And here's why. The whole situation, it starts, these three men, they appear in front of Abraham kind of out of nowhere. Then they start to have a dialogue and an exchange. And eventually, God reveals himself to Abraham. We're going to see that. And then the conversation starts to zero in between Abraham and the Lord. 
Okay, that's where the conversation is centered. Then skip down to verse 22 with me, okay? They've continued this conversation, and this is further than we're going to get today. But verse 22, it says, The men turned from there. Okay, so Abraham and these three men are standing there having a conversation. Then it says, The men turned from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. So two men left, went towards Sodom. The Lord stays... With Abraham and Abraham and the Lord, they continue their conversation for another couple of verses. And then we get to Genesis chapter 19. So a little spoiler alert here for Genesis 19. Verse 1, it starts like this. The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. Those two men, they were two angels And they were headed towards Sodom because they were going to enter Sodom and begin the judgment that was to come upon Sodom. And so these three men who appear before Abraham, two are angels, one is the Lord, and they appear to him. And the last observation we have in the appearing of God is this. Before he even reveals who he actually is, we notice that God here, he is appearing to Abraham in flesh. He is coming in flesh. Now, here's one of those areas where I know you and I have a lot of questions that the text is not going to answer for us. But I want you to notice, just just notice how God comes to his people. Okay, See how God actually comes to and interacts with his people. He comes to them in humility. He, he comes to us in understandable ways. Again, God is not like hiding from us. He comes to us in understandable forms. He comes in humility. And he shares a meal with his man Abraham. He eats with him. He dines with him. He dwells with him. And I'm, I'm not trying to overstate this. But, but like think about God the Son coming to us. In Christ, in the flesh, sharing meals, dwelling among us. It is a beautiful thing. Our maker. Like, don't over-spiritualize God. Don't under-spiritualize God. But recognize God, who is spirit, comes in flesh and shares a meal with his people. It's a remarkable thing. We see it here. We see it in Christ. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I hear people say things like, the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. Or like this totally different aspect of God. And I think, man, have you even read the Old Testament? It is so beautiful to see the consistency of God, the consistency of his character, his nature, even how he reveals himself to us. It's a beautiful thing. This is who God is. He is a God who dwells with his people, who dines with them. And here he is dining with his man, Abraham. Okay, but this passage, it doesn't just stop at the appearing of God. He doesn't just like show up. In fact, this passage, I think in a lot of ways, after verse 8, it starts to slow down. And we, and we see God now moving to revelation, to revealing himself, to, to a deeper understanding. Part 2 is the revelation of God. And, and we're going to walk through these last few verses of our text 
And as we do it, we're going to see four observations on the revelation of God. And the first is simply this. We, we see God now reveal himself. He pulls back the curtain and he like shows Abraham, it's me, the Lord. And I want you to notice how God reveals himself to Abraham. It's actually a beautiful thing and it should be familiar to us because this is often how God has revealed himself to human beings. This is how God reveals himself. Verse 9. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. They're in the tent, Abraham answered. Did you see it? This is God pulling back the curtain. Where is your wife Sarah? It's with a question. More importantly, it's with a name. See, Abraham's wife, her name was Sarai. Everybody knew her as Sarai. And then in Genesis 17, the Lord changed her name to Sarah. And here, out of nowhere, these three strangers appear. And they say to Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? Where is princess? And Abraham knows immediately. This is the Lord. And you'll notice from this point on, it's capital L. From this point on in the text, it is capital L, the Lord. It is, and this is, from this point on, you start to see the introduction of the word Jehovah. Lord. The God of Israel. The God of Abraham. He knows this is my maker. And we think about Mary. It was at her name that she knew this is the Lord. See, when God appears, by simply appearing does not mean that we as human beings can really perceive and understand with, with clarity who we're dealing with. But it's when he chooses to reveal himself that we see him as he is. And he reveals himself with a name. Where is your wife? Sarah, it's a beautiful thing. Second observation, God reveals his promised intentions. And he, he does it Really, he does the exact same thing he had just done in chapter 17. So in chapter 17, he come to Abraham and he had reiterated his promise, but he had, he had given even greater clarity and detail to the promise that he's given over and over and over again to his man Abraham. He said this, you're going to have a son through your wife, your actual wife, Sarah, and you will name him Isaac. And it will be this time a year from now that I'll come back and you will have a son named Isaac through your wife, Sarah, and now God reiterates the exact same thing in chapter 18, except he does it with a bigger audience. He does it with Sarah listening to him, okay? Verse 9, where's your wife Sarah? There in the tent, Abraham answered, and it's nearby. And, and, and I picture here God just like speaking a little bit louder, okay? So the Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife Sarah will have a son, now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Okay, so Sarah is listening. And obviously God knows, like it's God. So God knows that Sarah is listening in on the conversation. And it's like God, he, he wanted Sarah to know personally from the Lord, this is my intention. Because remember, in Genesis 17, it's just God and Abraham having a conversation. But here, the Lord knows Sarah is listening in. And it's like God wants Sarah to receive that message from him. You're going to have a son. It's coming through you, Sarah. In a year's time, you will have a son. 
And like anybody who's ever tried to pass on a message to my wife through me, you know why this is probably important for God to do this, to, to communicate the message directly to Sarah, especially as it relates to pregnancies. I don't know if any of you have ever told me that like you're pregnant or your wife is pregnant. I just want you to know there's a 0% chance I pass that along to my wife. I apologize for that. Um, and next time you should try saying it a little bit louder when my wife is listening behind the door. And so God, he makes it clear now his intentions to Sarah herself. You are going to have a son. You will be blessed with a son in a year's time. And notice Sarah's response. And it's very similar, by the way, to the way that Abraham had responded. It says, verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were getting old and getting on in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed, notice this, to herself. Okay, we know what that means. We, like, we, when we say she laughed to herself, what does that mean? Did she laugh out loud? No. She's not about to give away her position, hiding behind the door, listening in on the conversation. Good eavesdropping, all, like, you got to keep quiet. Okay? She laughed to herself, and, and this is what she thought in her head. Like, nothing, she's not, she's not engaging in a conversation here. This is in her head. After I'm worn out, my Lord's old, will I have delight? She didn't say it. She thought it. But then this is what happens. Observation number three, God reveals the thoughts of Sarah. He reveals exactly what was going on in her mind, in her heart, in her thought life. Okay? And, and I want you to notice this too. Pay careful attention. God treats her thoughts like they are on the outside. God treats what was on the inside as though it was on the outside. And not only that, but he expects her. He demands that she understand it to be just as real as being on the outside. Okay? He expects her to acknowledge her thoughts as reality. Just as real as if those words came out of her lips. Genesis 18, verse 13, But the Lord asked Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, Can I really have a baby when I'm old? Verse 14, Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. But Sarah denied it. She said, No, I didn't laugh. Because she was afraid. But God replied, No, you did laugh. And this is such a wild interaction between God and Sarah. And, and there's a lot I think that we could get into. But the big thing I want us to catch is exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5. Okay? See, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, he lays down a principle which is not brand new. It, categorically speaking, it is not brand new. It is not like this wildly new teaching. In fact, it's something that they should have understood from at least from this moment forward in the scriptures, okay? Here's the principle. God sees the heart. And he judges the thoughts and the heart just as he judges our actions. See, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught, if you hate your brother, if you're angry with your brother in the heart, it is just like murder. And I will judge it as such. He says, if you are lustful with your eyes in your heart, Lustful for a woman who is not your wife. Lustful for a man who is not your husband. 
I will judge it. I see it as clearly as day, and I will judge it just like adultery in our actions. And here he's peering right into the soul, right into the heart, right into the thoughts, the intentions of Sarah. And he is judging what is on the inside just as though it was on the outside. And she's terrified. See, God, he's judging what's on the inside of her. He says, why did you laugh? And she says, no, I didn't laugh. And like in part, I can totally sympathize with that. Like there's, a, there's truth. Like there's a, a part at least of truth in that. It's like, no, I didn't. But then you like, it's like there's this realization in Sarah like, oh my goodness. He saw what was in me. And she's terrified. And I think that is so appropriate. And there's a lot of allusions back to the garden. Like in this whole exchange, if you want, you could just look back through some of this, this passage in relationship to the garden. There's a lot of allusions here. First, God just seeking out Sarah. Where is Sarah? And, and then the hiding and the fear that's involved. But I think what is most remarkable about this passage It is the way that God's ability to see through us, it just just like eviscerates any sense, any delusion that we could possibly have of our own righteousness or our own goodness. It's just evaporated in an instant when you realize God, he sees right through to your heart. You know, I don't know how aware you even are of like what goes on in your mind. So here's the deal. I, I have millions of thoughts every day just like you do. And like desires, things working on my heart, operating in my heart that I am not like keenly aware of all the time. Okay? So things, they kind of pass like one side of my brain out the other side of my brain. And I don't really even acknowledge how like depraved and disgusting some of those things are because there's nobody who's shining a spotlight on it and like catching me in it and saying like, this is what you just did. This is what you just said. But as soon as that happens, see, as soon as God steps in and he shines a spotlight on her thought life, he's like, this is what you just said. It just destroys any semblance that I can have that I am good enough to stand before God and live, to stand in his presence, his holy presence and be righteous or to like somehow earn his favor, earn his approval. See, on the outside, we can mask so much. It's crazy. We're really good at it, especially as adults. Like the older you get, the better you get at masking the insanity and depravity that's on the inside, even from myself. Again, I don't stop and catch myself on every wicked, wild, terrible thing that passes through my heart. I just don't. But God, what we learn from this is that God is like that. He has like super x-ray vision. And as soon as the spotlight is turned to what's on the inside, it is a death blow to any delusion that we could possibly have that you can stand before a holy God and live. See, I, I think this truth, this principle, it forces us to the cross. You need the blood of Christ to cover your sin. You must have the forgiveness. See, as soon as there is a spotlight on what's on the inside of me, I must have mercy. 
grace, forgiveness. I, I can't earn my way into goodness and righteousness. Can't do it. God, he, he comes to Sarah. He just exposes what is inside of her. That is a God who made you. That is the God who you are accountable to. That is the God who stands in authority over your life, but it's also the God who loves you. And as he is revealing what is inside of Sarah, he also reveals what is inside of himself. God is revealing his own nature. And this gets us where we've been driving at the whole time. This, this gets us to the heart of the text, to the heart of the passage, into the very heart of God. This gets us, in a lot of ways, like I said, at the very beginning, it gets us to the heart of the Christian life, the heart of the life of faith. This gets us to the foundation that must be poured into our souls. Okay, without it, I'm just telling you, it is only a matter of time before your faith will crumble. Before you will find yourself in a crisis of faith. The foundation that needs to be poured into our soul is this truth. Revealed to us in this text. Our God is unstoppable. Our God is absolutely unstoppable in his promises. He is unstoppable in his faithfulness to his own word. He is unstoppable in fulfilling his own promises. God is absolutely unstoppable. That is his nature. That is who he is. He cannot be stopped. He will not be stopped. God absolutely will fulfill every single one of his promises. You see, when Sarah laughs to herself at the idea of a 90-year-old pregnant woman, which, by the way, is kind of funny. God, he comes to her. And he says this, is anything impossible for the Lord? That is the key question of the text. Is anything impossible for the Lord? Do you think that I won't fulfill my promise? I just told you I'm coming back in a year and you will have a son named Isaac. Do you think for one second that I won't fulfill my promise? Do you think that I can't fulfill my promise? And this is the heart of the Christian life. Do you believe that God will fulfill his promises? The Christian life, it's not any bigger than this. The Christian life, it is not bigger than believing that God, in his very nature, he is promise keeper. He is a promise maker, but he is promise keeper. He cannot be stopped in fulfilling his promises. It cannot be done. Do you believe that God will fulfill his promises? And that's more than hope. Do you believe in the certainty of God's promises and their fulfillment? And you see, as long as that's like a theoretical question or like just a doctrinal question, we check the right box. Like, it, it, does God fulfill his promises? Yes. But then, see, what happens is this. Life punches us in the face. And it's like we're, we're, we're not able to necessarily draw the connection between what is happening in our life and the certainty of God's promises. So what happens when your marriage is falling apart? What happens? 
What happens when your marriage feels loveless or lifeless or you're in conflict that you cannot resolve between your spouse? What happens when the intimacy in your marriage is gone? Are you then anchored in the promise of God? Are you then anchored in the certainty of his promises? Do you know what promises apply even to that arena of your life? Are you clinging to them? Do you cherish them? Are you rooted in them? Are you secure in them? Or what happens when when life just kind of feels like a big hamster wheel and it's like all you can do to just pay the bills? And, and go to your job and make sure you don't get fired and keep your kids alive and not have a meltdown. What happens when your kids are way more challenging than you expected? Like way more challenging. And you don't know how to control them. They don't obey. Do, do you see the certainty of God's promises even then? Do you know what promises even apply? Do you know what promises God has given that you might stand in them? And are you standing firm upon them? What happens when you can't keep up with the laundry and you can't keep up with the bills and you can't keep up with the sports and you can't keep up with the sleep and you certainly can't keep up with getting any time in the Word or in prayer? Do you know the promises of God? Do you, do you know where they apply and why? Are you standing in them? Are you convinced of the certainty God's promises. What about when your body is failing you and it's breaking down and you realize like everybody eventually realizes the trajectory for human bodies looks like this, not like that. And you think, what's next? Or your mind is failing and you realize the trajectory for human minds, it's like this, not like that. You can't shake your anxiety or depression. What happens when the intimacy in your relationship with God, it just kind of feels gone, numb, missing? What happens when you pray, it feels like nothing changes? What happens when you do finally get that time in the Word and you feel like, well, that didn't change anything? Do you believe the certainty of God's promises? Do you know them? Do you cherish them? What happens when all these situations in life, they, they come after us? And through them, our faith is under attack. Has life ever done that to you? I'll just tell you, if not, spoiler alert, it will. It's coming. And in those moments, what is the foundation in your soul? What is the concrete that is poured into your soul? Do you believe that our God is unstoppable and he must and will fulfill his word and his promises? Do you know what he has promised? Do you know why he has given us his promises? Second Peter 1 says this, by these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through the promises of God, you may share in the divine nature, 
and escape the corruption that's in the world because of evil desire. What a gift. Do you, do you know that God, he doesn't have to give promises. Like God doesn't have to announce what he's going to do. God didn't have to announce that to Sarah, to Abraham, or to anybody else. God could just do it. Like God, God can just do things. He doesn't have to call a shot every time, but he does come to us with his promises. He tells us, this is my plan. This is my purpose. This is, this is what I will do. You know why he's told us that? Why he's given us his promises? So we can share in his divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world. Because, and, and all of the corruption that's in the world, ultimately you can trace it back to the evil desires of our own hearts. Bearing out in all kinds of chaos in the world. And God says, I've given you my promises that you would be anchored in them that you might share in the divine nature. So when life punches you in the face, you can actually joyfully endure as you share in God's joyful divine nature through his promises. God's promises will do you very little good if you don't believe them when it counts. See, the very fundamental question at the heart of the gospel is this. Do you believe God will fulfill his word? Do you believe that God will fulfill his promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ? Do you believe that God must, in his own nature, must forgive you because of the blood and the body of Christ poured out? And broken for you. This is at the heart of the Christian life. The Christian life is not bigger than this. Do you believe God at his word. In his promises. It's no bigger. If that's not your foundation. You will not endure. If that faith. In the nature of God as promise keeper does not exist as your foundation, life will expose it and you will not endure. And the key here, you need to hear this, the key is not the strength of your faith. Okay? The key is not like some superpower faith. Faith like a mustard seed will do just fine. The key is what your faith is placed in. The key is that your faith is in the unstoppable God who makes and keeps promises. You need a strong God who is not just capable, but he must keep his promises, not the least of which is to forgive you and give you life through faith in Jesus Christ. My prayer, my hope, See, what, what, I, what I confidently hope in, that part of why I can stand here Sunday after Sunday and preach the word of God, my hope and my prayer, is that we will be a people who grasp this, who have this as our foundation, who are rooted and anchored in this, a quiet confidence in our Heavenly Father who always, always makes good on his word and on his promises. And may we be a people, no matter what life brings, 
no matter what circumstances come at us, no matter what ways life may punch us in the face, may we always be a people who are built upon a foundation that is rooted in confidence in our unstoppable God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you.